The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program as we kick off another week. We have a very interesting topic tonight, something I don't think we have talked about in the past. I'm talking about immortality. We've talked about it in the terms of uh, artificial intelligence and, and machines assuming our personalities and making us live forever as a machine. You know, we've talked about those fringe ideas, but we haven't talked about just immortality itself. And it's probably a discussion that goes back as far as mankind goes back. So this will be a really uh, fascinating conversation. Piotr Bienkowski will be our guest tonight. He's a professor of archaeology, and he's written about the topic. And he's also written about man's fascination with it. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, if, if you hung out with us over the weekend, you know we had a lot of fun Friday and Saturday nights. You know that was a good time. And um, especially if you're on a Twitch channel, <laughs> there were a whole bunch of neat things you could do with your channel points, or as we call them, noggins. And uh, we, we had a lot of fun. Just so you know, those replays don't stay up. We don't leave them up. Those are supposed to be real-time only interactions. And once it's over, we take them off and, and we don't have them. We might actually offer them for subscribers only. I have to consider that. I have to give that one some thought, but you know it's best. It's best that it's you know what state what happens in Twitch, as somebody said, uh, stays in Twitch. But if you if you're on our YouTube channel and you want to find the Twitch channel, it's just JV Johnson on Twitch. Very easy to find if you've got the app or go to the website. And uh, hello to all our Twitch friends as well. Um, and uh, you know the YouTube channel is going to remain our focus here for the uh, weekday programs. These more serious discussions will be uh, find their home. At, uh, at the YouTube channel, although we will we do stream them on Twitch as well. So either way, pick your platform form of choice, but I will warn you that the weekend programs will be Twitch only once we get rolling here and everybody's used to it. Check us out on YouTube. I mentioned the Twitch channel, but if, if you're looking for the YouTube channel, it's just as easy. Go to YouTube and search for JV Johnson. You'll find it. About 500 back episodes, something like that, there for you to watch and listen to. Also, the podcast version of the show is doing really, really well. We have so many downloads. It's really heartwarming to see so many people subscribing and being part of the show that way. It's a really convenient way to do it. And uh, I encourage you, even if you have, a, have listened to the uh, live stream or you watch on YouTube, find the, find the podcast version. It's a very convenient way. That way, if you miss something, it's automatically downloaded to your phone and you can listen to it. It's uh, on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, all the major ones. And then, once you've subscribed, share it with your friends. Put it up on your social media. Let people know we're here. These discussions um, warrant, I mean, the guests that we get on this program, Eddie does an amazing job of bringing really interesting people. Some more interesting than others, but they're all interesting in some way. And uh, sharing that so people know that we're doing it would be really helpful. So let people know in your social circles, your social media pages and places that we're doing this. They can subscribe or they can just listen to the ones that they're interested in, whether it's on YouTube or the podcast or now on Twitch when we stream live. So anyway, that's about it for me uh, in the opening here as we kick off this week. Let's go to break and we'll bring in our guest. Again, tonight we're going to be talking about immortality with Piotr Biankowski right here on Beyond Reality. Don't go away. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Tonight, our guest is Piotr Biankowski. He's a professor of archaeology. He's written a book, or actually many books, including Where Airy Voices Lead, A Short History of Immortality. Piotr, welcome to uh, Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you with us tonight. Thanks, JV. It's nice to talk to you. So um, I just have to ask you about the name, because I asked you during our, you know, we were getting set up here how to pronounce correctly, because I hadn't been saying it right. Uh, but is that a version of Peter by any chance? It is. It's the Polish version of Peter. Piotr. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about how you uh, found the path that led you to where we are tonight talking about this particular topic. You're a professor of archaeology. At what point in your life did archaeology become a passion for you? It's something I've been um, interested in, I think, all my life. One of my earliest memories is being uh, taken by my family to see the Egyptian mummies at the uh, British Museum in London. And it's uh, something I've never forgotten. I don't think it became um, something I, I thought that I could do professionally uh, until I was in my, in my late teens. Uh, but once, uh, once that idea got hold of me, I realized, you know, this is something I want to do with my life. Do you think that everyone who stares at a, at a uh, an archaeological treasure, whether it's in your case maybe a mummy or or some a sarcophagus from Egypt, or in other cases it could be something like Stonehenge, uh, do you think it instills the same ki- kind of curiosity in everyone? And, and certain people make it a calling; other people just live with the curiosity. I think it fascinates people in different ways. I mean, some are drawn into, um, you know, thinking about, gosh, you know, this this thing that I'm touching or I'm looking at was made by people just like me thousands of years ago, and that's just an awesome idea. Others are drawn into the, you know, the topic that we're we're talking about now, immortality. A lot of these things uh, were made in order to immortalize the person, especially in in Egyptian culture. So you know, so you start thinking about. Gosh, what does it all mean? You know, these people believed they could live forever. Can I live forever? It's a great point. And uh, many of these things that we look at and marvel uh, over are things that were intended to, if not necessarily make somebody uh, immortal in the afterlife or whatever it happens to be, but certainly immortalize them in in the memory of people. Um much of that work is is an attempt to achieve that aim. Is it successful? I suppose it depends on, on how you look at it. I mean, you're right. You, know, you have to make a distinction between, let's call it real immortality. So either seeking to prolong your life on this earth or immortality in an afterlife of some kind, actual living forever. But if that cannot be achieved, there's another type of immortality. This, this through fame or children, you might call it a symbolic uh, immortality, being part of something long-lasting that uh, outlives the individual. For some people, you know, the rulers, the kings, the heroes, those who are immortalized on public monuments, their names have uh, come down to us over thousands of years. You know, the the oldest story in the world, Gilgamesh, written first nearly four and a half thousand years ago. You know, we still we still know it now. We still remember the name or somebody like the Emperor Augustus in uh, in ancient Rome. He was very keen to have his name and his deeds immortalized. And because we still talk about it now, I suppose he was successful. I suppose it's not everyone, but there are people certainly who look at this idea of living forever in flesh and blood forever as something that's rather appealing. Is that do you think that's a common feeling or common uh, desire amongst humanity? Well, let's go back to the story of Gilgamesh I just mentioned. A lot of people call it the oldest story in the world, first written down at the end of the third millennium BCE in uh, in Mesopotamia. Um, and that's a story of somebody who tries to find exactly that sort of immortality. So, you know, when you, when you look at that story and you think mankind has been looking for that from the very beginning, you know, he's, he was thought to be a real king in Babylonian tradition. He looks for the, the one man who has the secret of immortality. He goes on a long journey in search of, of him. He fails to find that 
real immortality, or rather, he has it in his grasp and he loses it at the last minute. And he concludes that the only route to immortality is through fame and children. So right from the beginning, you had this, this, this confusion, this dichotomy, this wanting to live forever, but actually realizing, you know, I probably can't. Maybe the only way I can uh, have immortality is through being remembered and through some sort of uh, legacy. And that that dichotomy is repeated in many, many cultures over thousands of, of years. It's something that I think is still being repeated now. The idea of uh, a spirit living forever ever might be a little bit different than what we would consider to be immortality. Uh, but would you consider that to be immortal, an immortal spirit as opposed to uh, a presence on Earth forever? Yes, of course. And that's been part of the um, uh, discussion around immortality again for thousands of years. I mean, the word spirit is is interesting because uh, different people will understand different things by using that word. You know, some people use spirit, some people use the word soul. And the idea of having an immortal soul is something that goes back uh, to the ancient Greeks and has become a very important part of uh, some of the major religions like Christianity, Judaism uh, and Islam. Uh, so, uh, yes, of course, it's, uh, it's, it's part of the story of immortality. It may well be that something like a soul or a spirit survives, whereas the body might not. Or some religions actually try to combine them, like Christianity, for example, that at death or at the last judgment, the, the immortal soul and the body are reunited. And the story of how Christianity and Judaism and Islam came to believe that is uh, it's like a bit like a whodunit, really, trying to reconcile the idea of, uh, of a, a body that will be resurrected and the idea of an immortal soul. There's so many arcane theological discussions over the centuries about how that might work. It's actually a fascinating story. Yeah, you, you can't help but uh, having an intersection of this discussion with that of religion. The two uh, are hand in hand in many ways, at least in our, uh, I guess, in Western culture. I'm not sure it exists in all cultures, but maybe you can actually give us uh, a little bit of a, a contrast, if there is one, uh, of this idea of immortality as it as it. Uh, spreads across world religions. We kind of know what it is for Judaism and Christianity and even Islam, but what about some of the Eastern religions? Interestingly, the, the Eastern religions tend to um, approach this in a in a slightly different uh, way, but not a completely different way. A lot of the Eastern religions, most of them really, um, believe in the idea of reincarnation. Now, it's important to state that reincarnation is not immortality um, in itself. So it's a question of spiritual development. Your your spirit or soul, if you like, goes from body to body in search of spiritual progress in order to get rid of the, the chains of the body, to get rid of the idea of the self and to be, in, in some of the Eastern religions at least, to be united with the, the oneness of the universe. But that sort of reincarnation was also believed in um, in ancient Greece. So it's not it's not limited to the Eastern religions. And of course, it's become, um, certainly since the late 19th century, it's become quite popular in the Western world as well. Is it fair to say, or even fair to suggest, that after mankind figured out it could not prolong physical life, that part of the escape from that was moving to uh, some of these religions, and I'm not trying to uh, knock any of the religions, and I'm certainly not trying to trying to suggest that they aren't real for those that believe. I'm just offering an, an, a concept here. But is it fair to uh, suggest that maybe there was a move from the idea of a physical immortality to a soul or a spiritual immortality? Ooh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough question. You know, a lot of these things... Um, intersect and blend and it's quite difficult to disassociate some of these um, these ideas so uh, for example um, in the um, in ancient Greece there was an idea that there was um, an immortal soul but there wasn't a necessarily a separate heaven that you went to after death so there was some sort of underworld and um, 
at some point, one part of the underworld was slightly nicer, called Elysium, and that was reserved for the distinguished or the heroes. And later on, it became something that was um, uh, that, that, that was uh, available for all the righteous. But it was an underworld that you went to and you came out of again in a, in a form of uh, reincarnation. And the idea um, that the, the body itself might be resurrected came slightly later. That wasn't a Greek idea, but it was blended with the Greek idea of the soul. I mentioned before, you have these constant discussions in many religions about, is it just the body or is it also the soul? Um, and a lot of them go back to those Greek ideas that you first see written down in around the 5th century BCE. And it's remarkable how persistent they have been. And in fact, the Greek idea of the soul um, is an important part of um, the understanding of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam uh, regarding the soul. Talk to us a little bit about uh, Egypt, Egyptian customs of burial and how they related to the afterlife and immortality. Well, one thing we have to um, remember is that Egyptian culture lasted for about 3,000 years or so. Um, and you can't necessarily expect consistency over such a long period of time. Um, it's true that the Egyptian custom of um, mummifying a body is probably something to do with preserving that body forever. Exactly why that started, of course, we don't know. There's lots of speculation, but there aren't any documents that tell us this is why we did it. But there was an idea of, um, of identifying the dead person with the, the god of the underworld, Osiris, and in some way or other, preserving something. So, Mummification is probably an attempt to preserve the body. But Egyptian religion about um, uh, around burial customs is what I would call the belt and braces job. If one thing doesn't work, then something else will work. So first of all, you try and preserve the body, or you try and preserve an image of the dead person, or you try to preserve the name of the dead person. And a lot of the ritual and objects around um, uh, around burial and the things that we find in Egyptian tombs are around this idea of preserving some essence of the dead person because the worst thing that could possibly happen was that the the body and the image and the name would be completely lost and that was complete anathema for the ancient Egyptians and the other thing that was complete anathema was not to be buried within the land of Egypt so Egyptians had this um, great spiritual link to the land of Egypt and uh, you could really only attain the afterlife if you were buried actually in the land of Egypt if you were lost at sea or if you were burnt to ashes or if you died and were buried outside the land of Egypt the likelihood is you would not attain the afterlife. Wow, that's awfully grim. <laughs> what, what um, you know, we have some particularly, uh, I guess, uh, very entrenched customs uh, when it pertains to burial of our dead. Uh, whether you're religious or not, uh, we all fairly well follow the same customs. Um, there's, there's more, I think, a more accepted uh, use of cremation uh, contemporary, contemporarily, but uh, still, we we follow the same customs. Where do those customs come from? Are they are they a derivative of the Egyptian customs, or are they, they completely unrelated? They, I think, they predate the the, the Egyptians. I mean, there's evidence of um, mankind burying the dead um, back in um, sort of prehistoric times among the Neanderthals. And the interesting thing is, well, what did they actually believe? You know. We know they buried the dead. We know they buried objects with the dead. Does that mean they believed in some sort of um, afterlife? Did they believe mm -hmm. that the objects they buried um, were required by the dead as some sort of sustenance um, or some sort of guidance to the afterlife? Again, there's all sorts of speculation. We will actually never know. There, there are no written documents from, um, from that time, but of course, uh, it makes wonderful speculation. It really does. You've written about this um, pretty extensively. You've looked into it. At what point did 
an archaeologist, a professor of archaeology, somebody who had a fascination with antiquity, uh, start looking at immortality as a topic to explore and write about? I suppose I came to realize that it was a bit like food, shelter, and sex. Um, it's one of those core elements of every human life and of every culture. Uh, I honestly don't know of any culture, past or present, which has not expressed in some way or other a fascination for the idea of living forever and trying to achieve it in some way. Um, so it's something that links us to every other human being, past, present and future. And you, know, you can't really be working on... Um, Egyptian antiquity or ancient Greek or the ancient Near East without constantly coming across this idea of immortality in some form, whether it's Gilgamesh's search for eternal life, whether it's um, Greek philosophy's idea of the immortal soul, or whether in, in, more, uh, in more recent um, uh, cultures, um, indigenous groups in, in in North America, New Zealand, or Australia, having the idea of transformation into ancestors. It, it's everywhere. It's everywhere around us. So, I think what fascinated me was that, as an archaeologist and also as a museum curator, whatever culture I looked at, I realised there's some there's some form of immortality. It might not be the same, but there's still the idea of trying to to uh, prolong life or cheat death or overcome death. It's all there in different sorts of forms. And I thought well, it would be really interesting um, to put this all together. It is fascinating. And it is also fascinating to look at periods throughout history where attempts were made to thwart death. And uh, clearly that's never been successful, but it's something that we just keep as a species trying to achieve. And uh, I, su I suppose we will always try to thwart death. A lot of the a lot of the stories across the centuries in all sorts of different uh, cultures are about that attempt to um, to thwart death. Um, as you say, it's never been successful. So most of them are stories. They're they're stories. They're myths. They're legends. Uh, their epics, whether it's Gilgamesh or aspects of um, the story of uh, some of the Greek heroes like um, Achilles or some of the stories that, um, that Jonathan Swift tells in, um, in Gulliver's Travels. We're in the middle of uh, discussing a lot of things, but I want to circle back to this idea of, of immortality. Um, people have talked about artificial intelligence being able to achieve a sort of immortality. And I, I'm not even sure if it's the right phrase to say immort, uh, artificial intelligence could assume our memories and our maybe parts of our personality and give us a sort of what I would consider to be a faux, F-A-U-X, faux uh, immortality. Have you considered that? And what are your thoughts on it? I think it's been considered uh, by a lot of writers, again, in different cultures um, and, um, you know, in different ways over the centuries. Uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of the discussion is around, well, what what is going to become immortal? Is it me that is going to be immortal? I think most people who want um, immortality, I say most because not all, most people want immortality, uh, want it to be about them. It is me who will become immortal, yeah. me with my memories and my identity. So does artificial intelligence answer those aspects? Will it be me? Will it be my memories? Or will it be some sort of substitute? And is that enough? And can that substitute be manipulated? You know, will, 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 will my memories be somehow different to the ones that, um, that I've acquired? So you know the, the the idea that artificial intelligence may give us a sort of immortality is still in the realm of speculation and let's even in some ways call it um, science fiction but that doesn't stop writers speculating about well, what would it actually mean and does it does it answer my need for immortality I don't have an answer to that. You know, it's something we can uh, we can think about. Each person would have to uh, think about it and answer for themselves. Is would that immortality be acceptable to me? I suppose the answer might be well, if if it's that or complete, either that or complete extinguishing by death. Well, you know, I'll take the artificial um, intelligence immortality because it's better than nothing. 
Whenever this conversation uh, permeates a culture, does the culture respond with the what we would call, I guess, the uh, the adverse outcomes of such an idea? I mean, there are a lot of problems with living forever, ever, I would assume. Um, a lot of cultures have, most of the writing about uh, immortality in those cultures tends actually to, to concentrate on the, on the problems. You know, would it actually be worthwhile living forever? You know, is it something that would uh, perhaps be boring? Would it be uh, something that would be um, good for the individual? and uh, for society and what's uh, i think particularly fascinating is that in most of these what i call immortality stories in different cultures over the centuries most of the conclusions are that immortality would actually be a curse rather than a blessing and a lot of those who are either immortal or have become immortal end up craving death you know, they consider what living forever and ever and ever would really be like, or maybe they, they, you know, they're experiencing it and decide, you know, I actually don't want this. Obviously, nobody's, as far as we know, experienced it for real. Right. This is just specula speculation in, um, in 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 writing, but it's in it's in science fiction, it's in uh, it's in myths and epics. It, even um, modern sociologists and philosophers. Um, speculate about this. What would it mean, and is it really worthwhile for the individual and for society? And an awful lot of them uh, conclude that actually it probably isn't. You know, be careful what you wish for, because it's probably not what you think. And what about these ideas? Do they consider, uh, when they're talking in broad strokes here, do they consider it to be a, a global immortality or an individual uh, immortality? Because I imagine those two things would be very, very different. Yeah, that's a really good point, because some of the writing on this uh, topic is about uh, individual immortality. So taking the individual out of their um, their context uh, and, and against that, you've got a set probably much more recent writing, which considers what would be the impact on society. So some certain science fiction writers and certain sociologists have looked at, well, what would it be like if immortality was available for everybody? And would it be available for everybody for free? Or would you have to pay for it? Mm. And if you have to pay for it, for example, or, uh, does it mean for the idea of um, somebody being on um, on the electoral roll? What does it mean for somebody um, right. somebody's estate? You know, will 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 the idea of death or murder or suicide or passing your um, your estate onto your descendants will that have to be irrevocably changed? What actually would be the practical implications um, or for society of that sort of um, immortality? I mean, going back to your, your question about individual immortality, one thing we have to remember, and this, this goes to, to the uh, question of cryonics that we touched on um, earlier, that lives, individual lives, aren't just biological. They are social. Uh, you know, we, 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 we live um, in a certain um, culture. We have friends and family and a particular job, particular interests, particular hobbies and pursuits. Uh, if... We, um, if we die and are preserved, or if our lives are, pr are prolonged forever, but only as an individual, then those those social lives are irrevocably changed. You know, if we are either revived in the future, or if we survive for an imaginable, unimaginable length of time, then those family and friends and homes and jobs and hobbies are no longer there. Now, for some people, that sounds really interesting. You know, they think, well, I'd actually really <laughs> like to see what it's like in the future. But in fact, you're uprooted, uprooted from um, from what you really uh, are. Um, and it goes back to that idea of, is it is it me and my identity that becomes immortal? Or does it actually become something different? Does it become something that perhaps isn't so um, um, so worth having? It just seems it seems like a lonely existence uh, once you outlive those that you know and love um, and you have to try to recreate relationships 
uh, every generation. And you don't have the benefit, I don't think, of youth uh, where you grow up with people and uh, have uh, contemporaries. You just are, I was imagine, in a state of what, uh, old age or middle age or something. And um, it just you'd have to uh, recreate your life every 20, 30 years. This, this, this linking of immortality with youth is one of those threads that runs through so many stories um, in, in different cultures and over the centuries. I mean, the, the, what I regard as the earliest and greatest classical myth about the downside of immortality touches exactly on that, uh, that point. And that's the story of uh, Tiphanus. It was written in the 7th or 6th century BCE. Um, and the story is that the goddess of the dawn, called Eos, she falls in love with a mortal called Tiphanus, and she asks the uh, the ruler of the gods, Zeus, she asks him to make Tiphanus immortal, but she forgets to ask for eternal youth. So this is, again, one of these, these classical twists in these immortality stories. There's always something that's going to go wrong. And in this one, it's the forgetting to ask for eternal youth. So she, as a goddess, remains unchanged, but he grows older and older until she loses interest in him sexually. Mm -hmm. And he gets to the point he can no longer move or lift his limbs. So what does she do? She locks him in a room, and he's described as babbling endlessly. You know, he's lost his mind. He's lost control over his body. And the moral of that story is that there's no remedy for old age, that immortality without eternal youth um, is not worth having. And that, that thread is repeated so many times um, in different ways over the centuries. So in in that particular story, he continued to age, and the body continued to wither, but he just did not die. Exactly. Um, and 26 centuries later, the great uh, English poet, Alfred Lord Tennyson, wrote a poem about Tithonus, um, and it's like a monologue by Tithonus, and he yearns for death. It's one of these things that I was mentioning before, that in a lot of these immortalities, immortality stories, the, the immortals crave death. And this is what Tithonus is voicing in Tennyson's poem. He yearns for death, and he actually questions, why should a man try to avoid death? You know, he, he, he's lived so long, he's, he's lost control over his, uh, over his body, he's losing his mind, he wants to die, he doesn't want to be immortal. You know, and I don't mean to be more morbid or crass here at all, but um, there are a lot of people that are kept alive by medical technology that experience exactly what you just described. They're nowhere near immortal, but they live beyond what they uh, what they I would assume because I have not personally been in that situation, but what they feel that they should because that the existence they have with a withering body just is not pleasant at all. Yes, and a lot of the um, discussion in um, recent decades, especially among sociologists, has been about that um, um, exactly that 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 problem of the um, the uh, burden on the health services of different countries of uh, people's uh, lives being extended longer and longer. And remember, we're not talking here about immortality. We're just talking about the prolonging of life by a few years. And even that right. is having a huge burden on the health services. So if you look at it in context, again, looking at in, in, the idea of immortality um, being widespread socially, not just individual, you think, well, unless you have eternal youth, um, would this be an intolerable burden? on health services, given that a lot, of, a lot of them can hardly cope now. And when I say now, I mean the, the pre-now. Right, right. Now. <laughs> Everything's a little different right now. Exactly. <laughs> Big asterisks on the now. Um, yes. Let's talk a little bit about what the scientific community thinks of immortality. We've talked about this idea that we could be uh, in some way uh, uploading our memories and personality into a supercomputer but let's put that aside for a second does medical the medical science community or scientists in general that look at biology see a way that immortality is actually something that could ever happen i think generally the answer is no um if you take the um the views of i think most scientists not all most scientists um, these days, the orthodox view, let's call it an orthodox view, is that um, 
the mind, every, everything that we think and feel and hope, perceive, is created by the physical brain. That there isn't something spiritual or, um, or mental. That anything mental is actually produced by the physical brain. And if that's true, then they discount anything like the resurrection of the body because the physical brain um, has, um, has decayed. It excludes something like the immortal soul, because there isn't anything mental or spiritual. It excludes anything like um, reincarnation, because there isn't anything that can go from one existence um, to another. It excludes any sort of, uh, any other transformation uh, that, that some societies believe into, into spirits or plants or uh, other um, inanimate uh, objects. So generally, I think uh, orthodox science these days does not believe in any sort of immortality. You know, but I do find it interesting that uh, we know that the body, if we talk about physical immortality, we know that the body is constantly replacing itself. Cells are replacing other cells from birth to death. And it almost seems as though there might be a genetic trigger somewhere along the way that uh, enables the body to continue to do that for, I don't know if it's forever, but certainly for a lot longer than it uh, than the current lifespan is. Is, is that discussion being had anywhere? Yes, it is. Uh, but I think it, the, the discussion is around well, what are those cells that uh, are uh, being or uh, being um, transformed into another form of existence? So, you know, let's take an example. Somebody dies, their body um, decays, and therefore the um, all, all the different the cells, the particles, for instance, if they're buried, they seep into the ground. They become part of something else. And, and there are some... Uh, modern immortality stories, which try and um, tell that story from um, a non-religious or non-spiritual perspective. They say, well, in some ways we are immortal. There isn't any mentality, there isn't any memory, no sense of identity in those cells, but they really do become part of something else. Um, but there is a, a significant strand of scientific thought which um, believes, you know, there's evidence that in fact memory and experience, sentience, isn't just limited to the physical brain, that in fact there could be something like cellular memory. So each cell um, has some form of memory. So when a person dies and those cells become part of something else, in some cases a vestige of the memory could actually become part of uh, something else. And, and in this way, um, that, that sort of philosophical and scientific uh, perspective uh, is integrated into some sort of religious uh, or spiritual views of, um, of uh, immortality and uh, not so much as an afterlife as um, a form of existence which continues beyond our current existence. Piotr, uh, I imagine uh, a lot of this circles around to the idea that we are immortal and it's our progeny that it's that makes us immortal yes um the you know going back to the idea of um uh, symbolic immortality that perhaps you know the only way we can achieve any sort of immortality is through through children or fame or being um remembered uh and we leave some sort of memory legacy or heroic deed that will be remembered down the ages. So you can create an empire or become an Olympic champion or write a book or to have children. So as an individual, you might not survive, but the family line will. And maybe the family name. You know, I always find it very interesting that um, a lot of people um, seem to think it important that their name survives. And they, they bemoan the fact that, for instance, if they don't have children or if they don't have uh, male children, then the name won't survive. I find that quite interesting. You know, and why is that? I think it's you know, probably some form of symbolic immortality. So the family name will survive and therefore something greater than you, but actually part of you, will, will, will outlive you. Um, and in a more real sense, your children remember, will remember you and they'll tend your grave, at least for a, for a short time. And going back to the first thing we talked about, 
the, the world's oldest epic in the third millennium BCE. That's the conclusion that the hero Gilgamesh comes to. He failed in his search for real immortality, but he comes to the conclusion that fame and children are the only route to immortality. Your books are available where, Piot? Uh, well, they're, they're certainly um, available through the, the usual um, sources. They're, they're all on Amazon. Uh, don't forget to swing by Facebook and like our page. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Some 70,000 people there uh, already, and we'd love to have you be part of that group. Also find my page. It's JVJ Paranormal or just JV Johnson. Either way, you'll be able to find it rather easily. And it's a great place to uh, keep up on what we've got going on here on the program. We always announce our guests there. Plus, we have bonus content, additional content for you as well. Tonight, we're talking about uh, immortality with Piotr Biankowski, and we have uh, a lot more conversation to go here. But before we get back into the immortality discussion, uh, Piotr, you've done a lot of work with museums, obviously something that uh, an archaeologist would probably uh, find uh, very comforting and very much at home. Uh, But tell us a little bit about your museum work. Well, my first job was as a curator of a large antiquities uh, collection in the northwest of England, um, one one of the biggest collections of Egyptian antiquities um, in the United Kingdom, ancient Near East, uh, ancient uh, Greece. So, um, you know, I did that for um, many years, sometimes looking after antiquities, part of the collection, uh, antiquities that have been collected by really um, interesting um, people. One of the ones I always remember is uh, Henry Ryder Haggard. He wrote that great adventure of immortality, She, about somebody who lives for 2,000 years after finding the secret of immortality and eternal youth. But she withers away after trying to renew its effects. So it's, it's, it, it, it joins that, that list of great immortality stories that there's always a catch there somewhere, somehow or other, immortality will um, will elude you. But what was interesting about um, Henry Ryder Haggard is he had a deep interest in ancient civilizations. He collected antiquities from the ancient Near East, from Egypt and the classical world, and those were part of the collection that I um, curated. And it was quite clear that in his stories, he was influenced by these ancient tales of lost immortality and eternal youth, like Gilgamesh, like the classical myth. Uh, myths. But he was also a colonial administrator in South Africa, and he was exposed to traditional Zulu tales. And he mixes this all together in some of his uh, stories. So it's, you know, great fun looking after what he chose um, to collect. How important is it for museums to exist in terms of allowing people to, if nothing else, get a, a firsthand look at some of these creations uh, mostly of mankind, if, kind of. If we're talking about that type of museum, but there's also, uh, you know, museums of natural history, that kind of thing. But how important is that to our culture? I think it's absolutely central. I mean, museums are uh, both about um, how how we got to where we are. You know, a museum in a particular country will tell, or in a particular town or city or even village, will tell the story of um, of the people who made that place the way it is. And it helps you to position yourself in that long line um, of history. But it also tells you, the great museums um, will tell you about what's happening elsewhere. You know, this is what we've got here is one sort of culture, one source of society. And we tell the story of how we got there. But there are other places with which we have intersected. Um, and they've um, had other worldviews, other beliefs, other practices. And this is part of uh, everything that makes us uh, human. Piotr, has the digital age helped or harmed uh, this effort? Uh, it seems in, in some ways that the ability to look up uh, and see pictures of things that you, you couldn't find previously uh, prior to the Internet is, is a real advantage. But at the same time, maybe it keeps people an arm's length away from these things they should be seeing in person. You're right. There are pros and cons. I mean, the pros are that you can get um, information out both about museum activities, but also uh, information about what the museum holds, uh, catalogue information um, and, and, and pictures. So you, you get some sort of at least virtual access to the collections out to uh, an unimaginable number of people who will perhaps never 
visit your museum. Another things that another thing that a lot of museums have been doing in the last few years is encouraging um, people, not only from um, their own cities but from across the world, to send in stories and information and data about some of the collections. So it's not just the museum staff, it's not just the curators who um, are then gathering the information. You've got access to the combined minds, as it were, of the whole world, and people can send in information that will expand our knowledge of the um, of the collections. And of course, you know, in the situation we are at the moment in in, in lockdown, both in mm-hmm. uh, in America and in the United Kingdom, that uh, that digital um, ability, you know, the virtual museum. It's all we've got. Every single museum in the United Kingdom is closed. I presume that's that's the same um, in America. Yeah. But a lot of them are working very, very hard to um, get information um, and, and activities and quizzes about art, about history, about archaeology um, out to, uh, to people. And for some people, it's a very important way of surviving this period to still be linked um, into that um, into that wider culture uh, and history and archaeology. So those are the those are the pros. There are cons. Um, you know, you mentioned that perhaps the, the the virtual world is dissociating us more from the tangible, from the real. And looking at the information about an object or a picture of an object um, online is not the same. Is that looking at the real thing, um, uh, let alone handling the real thing? And in the end, that's what museums are about. They're about real, tangible objects. And more and more museums in their public programs, in more normal times, you know, encourage people to um, um, to pick up objects and to to touch them to see what does it make them uh, what does it make them feel. And and touching something is completely different from looking at it on the screen because you've got those other senses that come into play the sense of touch the sense of smell um and um you know they 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 evoke so much experience and memory um in a lot of people when you pick them up that i think it's uh it's it's um a reason why real museums as opposed to virtual museums will always have to exist because that tangibility and reality which museums offer you know cannot be reproduced uh, in virtual form yeah you also get a sense of perspective too which uh, is not necessarily available when you're looking at a photograph or reading something uh, when you see it in person it's much it's a much different experience let's move the conversation back to immortality this conversation can't happen without talking in some way about heaven and hell tell us about heaven and hell how they exist in this this conversation how long have you got, JV? Um, <laughs> I think what I find fascinating about the concepts of heaven and hell is how much they have changed over the centuries and in different cultures, and in many ways, how different cultures and societies uh, imagine heaven and hell, if they imagine them at all. Um, it d- depends on the worldview of that society. It depends on religious factors it really depends on cultural factors it depends on the way they understand their world their so-called cosmology so going back to our earliest records in the ancient near east um there was a very simple three-part cosmos there was the heaven where the gods lived there was the earth where humans lived and there was an underworld where the dead lived there wasn't really a, a heaven that you went to. The, the heaven was reserved for the gods. And a lot of the stories are about humans trying to reach that hevel, heaven, trying to achieve immortality, but they always fail. They might visit heaven, but they can never stay there. And the underworld wasn't. It wasn't heaven. It wasn't hell. Everybody went there. It was a bleak, dreary place. At exactly the same time, over in Egypt, you have the idea that, uh, that the afterlife is a recreation, a sort of perfect recreation of life on Earth. It's, it's like the world of the gods, but humans can go there as long as they have behaved in some sort of righteous manner, as long as they go through, um, through a, a sort of a process after death, they answer the right questions about their life, then they will achieve um, um, the afterlife. 
It's only much later you get um, the idea of um, of separate heaven and hell. That's something that 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 that, that uh, turns up first in early Jewish writings in the third and second um, centuries BC, um, and a lot of the idea of a, sec a separate heaven came from. Um, astronomical observations or improved astronomical observations, a new understanding of the movements of um, the sun, the moon, the um, the planets, um, and the Greeks, and later the, the early Jews and the early Christians, um, located a heaven not in an underworld, but beyond the known planetary bodies. So once the, the Greeks developed the idea of a spherical rather than a flat earth, they realize, well, the, the planetary spheres are above that, and that's where heaven was located. And first of all, that was a single heaven. But again, the improved astronomy meant that uh, the idea of multiple heavens became created. So uh, very often multiple heavens uh, mirroring the number of planets that could be observed through astronomy. And you know, over the centuries, that developed into um, probably the most influential picture of um, of a, a, a western heaven, that of uh, Dante in his uh, Divine Comedy. Um, he has nine levels of heaven, which reflect the, uh, the findings of uh, Greek astronomy. On the other hand, in a completely different culture, in, in, uh, in, in Celtic culture, heaven isn't a single place or isn't a, a, a place even beyond the um, uh, planetary spheres. It's a series of fantastic islands at the end of the world acro uh, across um, a vast body of uh, water. So there are so many different conceptions of heaven and hell, and they're always determined by these different factors, whether it's religious or cosmological um, or cultural. So there, there has never been just one one picture of heaven. So sometimes people ask, well, will heaven be boring? To which my response is always, well, which heaven are you talking about? <laughs> are you talking about, you know, the heaven of the Egyptians or that of the ancient Near East, which wasn't really a heaven at all? Um, are you talking about the Celtic heaven? Um, and th th the answer is, well, it's in, it's in your worldview. It's in your hopes and aspirations and what, what you believe religiously or what you don't believe. And one thing I find interesting, there are some statistics that show that um, just a few years ago, nearly three quarters of U.S. adults believe in heaven. Um, so, you know, that continues to be um, a very, very strong belief. Yeah. Yeah. Did these concepts, I, I know there will be exceptions to this, but for the most part, do the concepts of a heaven and a hell always include a, a God or, or a divine presence and then an anti-God or an anti-divine presence? Uh, is that is that the the rule instead of the exception? One of the overall patterns that um, I've picked up as I was doing the research for this uh, for this book is that in many ways the idea of what heaven is and who is it for and who or what is in it has actually been completely flipped around over a period of several thousand years. So in our earliest records in the ancient Near East. I mentioned just now, heaven was reserved for the gods and humans couldn't get there. Nowadays, a lot of the pictures of heaven are almost exactly the other way around, that heaven is seen as a place where there should be some sort of activity and progress and the development of the individual. Um, and very often in these pictures of heaven, God doesn't even appear. It is it's almost entirely the humans. So yeah, that's an interesting pattern. It's much it's become much more about what we as humans actually want and desire. It's that idea of well, what sort of immortality do we want? In, and many people want the immortality which carries on the best sort of things that we have in this life, but it, it's a perfected form of this life. And this, we've kind of touched on this throughout the conversation, but let's assume for a minute that some form of immortality was available and maybe, maybe it's optional and maybe like you had posed, uh, it's something that maybe you have to pay for. Um, would you, would it, would it be something worth even having? 
I, I think it depends on the form of immortality. Um, let's go back to what we were just talking about, the, um, um, the, 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 the idea of, um, of, a, uh, of, of a heaven. Medieval conceptions of heaven uh, saw it as gazing on the face of God for all eternity, the so-called beatific vision. Um, I have to say, you know, I'm not sure if that sounds like a particularly interesting or worthwhile uh, way of um, of spending um, eternity. Um, but different um, forms of um, of heaven, especially more modern ones, have a particularly earthly type of human um, happiness. They have marriage, they have friends and family, pets, jobs, um, and they 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 answer that craving for um, having something interesting to do and uh, and progress um, and activity. But immortality, as we've already been discussing, may in fact be, uh, exist on this earth. It's a prolongation of, uh, of human life. Well, in which circumstances would that be worthwhile? If you had eternal youth, maybe, but if you, if it's only you, if you've lost all your family and friends and jobs and everything's changing around you and feel you feel uprooted, well, maybe it's not such a great thing after all. Um, one of the um, one of the things that uh, really um, worried me when I was a child was um, the idea of um, of uh, of immortality. I was brought up from Polish background. I was brought up as a Roman Catholic, which has a promise of eternal life in heaven. Which we've been discussing, mm -hmm. and as a young as a young boy, I, I thought about this very carefully. You know, six seven years old. I thought, right, we've got we've got heaven, and everybody lives forever. And I try to think through what does that really mean in practice. And you know, my head span, and I came close to panic when I tried to imagine what living forever and ever would really be like. You know, try and imagine it: millions and millions of years, yeah. and then millions more, never ending, <laughs> something that doesn't stop. And it scared me. And it's a feeling I've uh, never forgotten. And I, I wonder if I actually didn't fear death so much as the prospect of eternal life. We had a comment in our chat room that I found particularly interesting. When I'd asked you the question, uh, is it worth having? Uh, one of our chatters said, um, I would say it's worth having if you enjoy life. But I guess the problem with it is that you can't be certain those cir same circumstances will continue forever. And they most likely wouldn't. Exactly. And a lot of the discussion, especially among philosophers um, of this, is around exactly that idea. Not only external circumstances, but um, sort of internal circumstances, things about your own memory and your identity, that over uh, an unimaginably long period of life, what you remember, unless, unless our brains and our memories underwent a huge transformation, we'd be forgetting quite a lot of um, of what we'd done we'd pre you know we'd probably forget our parents and our children um, and therefore is the person who is existing thousands of years into the future is that any longer me and and what are they doing they're probably doing things that I'm not doing now is you know is is that worthwhile for some people will answer yes, saying, well, that actually sounds really interesting because there, there, there will be change, there will be progress. Other people will say, well, it's not really me anymore, so I'm not sure if I can wish for that because the, the, the me, as it were, in that unimaginable future no longer has the identity and the hopes and fears and the experiences that I have now, so it's probably not something that I can wish for. Uh, Piotr, are you, are, you, are you or were you a religious person? As I said, I was brought up as a, as a Roman Catholic, so you know, that was my background. I don't think I would describe myself as a, a religious person now. And one of the things that I, I try and do very carefully in the book Where Every Voices Lead is um, I try to be um, very objective and fair about all these uh, different approaches to immortality, um, looking at the how and why they developed, putting them into their um, contemporary um, context and trying to see them all as potential explanations without judging whether or not um, you know, they're true 
certainly none of them are irrational none of them are incoherent you know within within uh, within their own cultures they all make sense and that's actually what i find interesting that you can you can look at the details of the um, the beliefs how they've developed historically and realize yes actually within this culture this really makes a lot of sense and, and my follow-up to the that question was going to be after you did this research and after you wrote the book did you find it swayed your uh, spirituality in one way or another or your belief in any of this in one way or another? Did you uh, become a more spiritual person, less, or did it not? Did you not look at it that way at all? I think I found I was a, a, a rather accomplished fence sitter. Um, <laughs> that that, that I'm, I'm quite capable of looking at the, um, the history and the, the origins, the history and the development of all of these, looking at um, uh, how and why those beliefs thrived um, and seeing seeing the pros and cons of every single one of them i mean including that materialist scientific belief that no immortality is possible you know all of them um, have uh, have good arguments for them but also all of them um, have explanatory gaps you know we we literally we do not know which, if any, of those beliefs, whether there is, you know, one form of immortality or another, or no immortality at all, we literally we do not know for certain, and I think that's what makes it uh, that's what makes it interesting. It certainly does. Uh, and one more point, and um, we're going to get close to the end of our conversation here. But what about um, cryogenics? What are your thoughts on that idea and the fact that there actually are people that are being frozen uh, at the point of or just before the point of death? Uh, in hopes of some type of immortality. That's right. I mean, that's that's an uh, an idea that started in the um, in the mid '60s, and the first uh, the first person to be cryogenically frozen was, I think, in a 1967. Um, and to my knowledge, he is still cryogenically frozen. Some of those early attempts weren't successful because the um, the freezing um, 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 wasn't terribly uh, effective. And in some ways. You can you can dismiss it as simply another way that humankind is trying to achieve immortality. You know, so it, it takes its place alongside the long list of magic elixirs, plants, sacred fires, holy vessels in the history of the human imagination as the hope of those reaching for immortality um, on this earth. But you know, we we don't really know. Some 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 scientists um, worry that um, the, the optimism that uh, these people will be able to be re- revived and cured and their lives extended, that the optimism is actually misplaced because some worry that uh, too much damage is likely to have been done to the brain, for example, to make it worthwhile to attempt resuscitation um, in the future. And there is another another question. Again, some, some philosophers have discussed this, that given, as we something we've mentioned earlier, given the current um, uh, and likely continuing pressure on the health services across the whole world. If you've got a group of people who are cryogenically frozen, and if you've got a group of people who are still alive, um, and a treatment becomes available that might potentially cure those who are, the, the, what, whatever ailed the people who are cryogenically frozen, who is going to have um, preferential access to that treatment? Is it the people who are cryogenically frozen, or is it the people who are still alive? It goes back to the question that we touched on earlier, that, um, that potential immortality, especially in terms of cryonics, might have a cost. You know, who, who has access to it? Who can pay for it? Um, you know, are, the, are, the, are the people who are alive more important than the people who paid for chronic preservation in the hope that a cure would be found in the future. What's likely to happen is that not everybody can have access to um, um, to any new treatments. So the interesting and completely unanswerable question is, well, who will get access to it? You know, the long dead or those who are still alive? 
And then there's also a, 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 a longevity question after uh, a resuscitation. I mean, unless you were uh, cryogenically frozen with a trust fund to take care of you and support you when you, if and when you are uh, revived, uh, how do you support yourself? I mean, there's so many other questions that go along with that that uh, I don't think, I don't know, maybe maybe they've been answered. I haven't heard those answers, though. Well, I know that, that some of the people who were cryogenically uh, frozen um, did have um, uh, bank accounts and investments, and presumably these things will be growing through compound interest. Um, so the argument is that when they are, uh, if and when they are revived, there will be you know a large chunk of money that will help pay for treatment and for um, and for a new life. Once again, it comes down to resources and money. You know, is is immortality a question of um, of who can pay for it? I mean, in some ways, it, it takes us back, interestingly, to um, the ancient Egyptians and mummification. Mummification was an expensive process. And what you have to remember is that only the elite in Egyptian society had that sort of afterlife. You know, most of what we know about ancient Egyptian culture isn't about the ordinary people, the 99% of peasants. We actually don't really know what they thought. Most of the cases, we don't know how they were buried, what they believed about the afterlife. What we know is about the elite. So the rulers, the um, the, 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 the priests, the soldiers, um, and they could pay for that sort of afterlife. And in many ways, the, the, uh, what's happening in terms of uh, cryonics and the hopes of cryonics is a uh, little different from, from the hope of, uh, of the elite ancient Egyptians. You, that whole cryogenic uh, option seems like rolling a lot of dice and they all have to come up sixes or something for it all to work out for you. Yes. And some people say, well, you know, what's the, what have I got to lose? Um, if, uh, if I don't get revived, then I'm still dead. But if there's a chance, even a small chance, that I might be revived and there might be sort of some sort of life, then you know I'm willing to put my uh, my money into that. We're uh, we're at the end of our time, uh, Peot, but I want to uh, get a final thought for you. What's the most important message people should take away with this from this discussion? That any of these any of these potential routes to immortality. Um, is is possible you know we cannot exclude any of them none of them can be proved but none of them can be excluded so for me the important thing is you know all no matter what you believe you know you might believe um that there is a, a heaven and your immortal soul goes there to be reunited with your resurrected body that may be true or it may not be true um but somebody else may believe that they'll be reincarnated any of these ideas is possible. I think the important thing is not to dismiss them as irrational or incoherent and always to uh, accept that no matter what you believe, that the other person may well be right. The book is called Where Airy Voices Lead, A Short History of Immortality. Uh, once again, where can people find it? If you look on Amazon, you'll find it there. Terrific. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I know it got, it's incredibly early in the UK, so you had to get up super early to do this interview. We appreciate that. I've been watching the dawn as we've been talking. Yes. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much and best of luck it's with all of your work. Oh, and just give your website out for folks too. So it's my name, piotrbiankowski.co.uk. Terrific. Thanks so much. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.